0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Intelligent Transport Podcast. My name is Halima Haq, I'm the Editorial Assistant of Intelligent Transport and your host for today. Joining me for this episode is Isabel McAllister, Chief Sustainability and Compliance Officer at First Bus. Today we'll be taking the opportunity to delve into First Bus's recent sustainability initiatives and what the future holds for the transportation industry. Isabel, it's wonderful to have you with us today to share your insights on such a crucial topic for the public transportation industry. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Great. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about First Bus's sustainability and efforts, as well as how the company is working towards creating a more environmentally friendly and efficient transportation system. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Before we dive into the details of the company's sustainability initiatives, Isabel, I think it would be really beneficial if you could please tell our listeners a bit about your role at First Bus, as well as more on the company's Mission 2035 pledge.
1: Hi, so um, sure, I'll tell you a bit about my role. And um, I guess what's a little unusual is I think I'm the only person in the industry with this with this role title of Chief Sustainability and Compliance. So if there's anyone out there that would like to connect with me to say, hello, I'm one of those two, that would be great because I'm always really keen to collaborate. Um, so I joined about a year ago and um, my role takes on a few big topics that I think would be fa- fairly self-evident from my job title role. So the, the real chunky one is decarbonization of the fleet, uh, which is my background. So I'll tell you a little about that too. Um, I also look after our property portfolio. So um, it's quite a chunky part of my remit. We've got about 200 assets. Um, I also look after health and safety, which clearly is absolutely critical to our business and uh, our operations. And then I also look after environment, security, um, partnerships and policy. So it's, it's quite a chunky role. And I think today we're only going to focus on decarb, but I'm very happy to, to chip in on those other bits, too, if you'd like. And then in terms of the company's pledge, I was really fortunate to inherit a fantastically bold strategy and a bunch of commitments that sit with that. So um, we are fully committed to a zero emissions fleet by 2035. And we're on track to do that. So um, yeah, there's a massive program of work uh, to get us there, but we're doing well. I think that was quite a long introduction <laughs> to my role. No, but it's... hopefully that's
0: <laughs> No, it's perfect. And you really do have a unique role. Um, it's great to see that First Bus is taking such a proactive approach to sustainability. And it's certainly clear that your role is crucial in driving these initiatives forward. Um, I'm sure our listeners are keen to learn more about the specific steps you're taking to reduce emissions and increase energy efficiency. As you've briefly touched upon, since the beginning of 2023, First Bus has deployed and started a number of initiatives to advance its climate action strategy, with the most recent being the construction of its super depot in Portsmouth. How will this new depot fit into the company's sustainability strategy and what impact will it have on the local community, staff and environment? Okay, so if I give a bit of
1: context before I talk about the new depot, um, our material uh, element or the material element of our climate strategy is obviously to decarbonise the buses. But in parallel with that, we've got a whole bunch of energy efficiency and um, energy generation projects underway as well. Um, uh, The emissions that come from our buses are more than 95% of the emissions that we create as a business. If we're looking just at those that are our direct emissions, obviously there are also emissions associated, for example, with the manufacture of our buses. So we've got um, a a good amount of work and target setting in that space too. But the direct emissions that everyone can kind of understand and visualise is what's coming out the back of a bus. So I'll talk about that a bit later in terms of um, how how we're moving along there. But a key part of how we underpin those buses and make them efficient and make our business efficient is our depots. And as I'm sure many people will appreciate on the call, bus depots come in all shapes and sizes. All types of age profile, all types of effectiveness, not always located optimally because uh, our customer base has changed and the the travel patterns that our customers have have changed. So we've got a big piece of work trying to reposition the assets that we have and make sure that those that are um, are, uh, are future-proofed are in the right place, I guess. So what's really exciting is that we will be building our first new depot in a number of years. Um, work on that is underway at the moment in Portsmouth, and that will be the first time we've ever built a bespoke all EV depot. So, um, we're pretty excited about that. Yeah. So, it will be a super low carbon, hopefully net zero in operation build. If I tell you a little bit about my background, that might help. So, before being a bus person, I did more than 20 years in construction. So, Sometimes my enthusiasm can be a little bit, uh, a little bit toppy for the construction elements of, of my role. But yeah, so I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to call on all of that previous experience and all of my partners and network to make sure that that's going to be a really great project.
0: That's great. Thank you for delving into that and for giving us a bit of insight into your construction background. It's certainly a unique combination, I think, but I'm sure it really helps you in your current role as well. Um, The Portsmouth Super Depot is certainly an exciting development for the company. Before we move along, um, I was hoping that you could discuss a bit more about the practicalities of implementing an electric fleet, specifically in terms of the charging infrastructure that is required to power these vehicles. Sure.
1: So um, in simple terms, (laughs) um, an electric bus needs a giant plug and a big power supply to feed it overnight so um one of the critical path elements of our program of work is to make sure that we've got those power supplies in place so a good amount of work was done before i joined and then we've kind of expanded that program of work since i've joined to electrify all of our depots all of those in the forward plan that we anticipate are a good fit for ev and are a a good fit for the future so um A really key part of what we do is to work closely with all of the DNO organisations, which is the distribution network operator entities. So those are the companies that look after all the pipes and wires underground and make sure that any new development or change of use within a development is appropriately fed with with the power demand that it requires. Um, That process in terms of getting the connection in place can take a really short period of time and in some instances it can take many months. And it's very much dependent upon the the strength and robustness of the existing infrastructure um, that's local to to where your facility is. So I guess that's for us has been something we've had to really carefully manage and forward plan because it's not consistent. We can't assume every time that it's going to be three weeks or three months or three years to um, to get that facility connected. So. That's a big part of what we get right or try to get right. And then of course, you've got the distribution of that power across your depot. Um, the power needs to, to be safe. It needs to be appropriately controlled and it needs to be appropriately distributed such that all of the chargers, <clears throat> excuse me, all the chargers which will be installed across the site have got what they need. And then each of those chargers and they have got two models of charger. So um, there are those that are on the ground which are essentially, we call them the big fridges. So that it's like having a big sort of kind of um, American-style fridge-sized thing um, on the ground. And they have two cables that run from them for, to be able to charge two buses concurrently um, overnight. Um, we also have those that hang from a gantry, so a steel structure, above the bus. And those can have two or three. Uh, cables running from them. So, we've got a blend of those um, that are in operation at the moment. And we've got eight sites where we've got EVs running or we've got EVs about to to be running from. So, all of that infrastructure work is either ongoing or complete across those eight locations. And then we've got power connections going into a lot more of our sites at the moment. So, all of that work is being program managed directly by us too.
0: So, yeah, there's quite a lot in it. And there certainly is. It's really fascinating to hear about the variety of charging solutions that FirstBus is exploring as part of this transition to an all electric fleet. It does really sound like a significant investment, but one that I'm sure will be critical to achieving the company's sustainability goals. Of course, securing a consistent funding stream is vital when it comes to many of the projects that FirstBus is currently working on. So, what was the process like for securing Department for Transport approval for boosting the zero emission bus regional area funding to electrify Leicester's bus depot?
1: So, um, I wasn't with First Bus for the first round of funding, but we we were successful with partial funding for Leicester before I joined. And then shortly after I joined last year, um, DFT confirmed that there was a little bit of underspend in the pot so anyone could apply um, to to boost their existing funding if they felt that they could uh, provide the capital to to fund the conclusion of a a site. So um, essentially, the way that DFT measure the effectiveness of an application is Firstly, is the local authority absolutely stitched in and supportive and wanting to to progress with the, the greener buses? Typically, um, those authorities who are very pro-bus may have secured money to ensure the effectiveness of bus routes as well. So, for example, um, for perhaps enhanced bus lanes or, or the like, what would be... Unhelpful is to invest all that money in electrification and then find that there's just giant traffic jams all over the place. So those buses aren't actually optimising uh, the customer experience or optimising reduced carbon emissions because they're not not travelling as far over the course of a working day. So um, so that's a big part of it. The local authority partner really needs to be supportive and wanting to to work with the bus operator. And we're very fortunate. Many of our partners are are, are very much committed to reducing carbon and supporting bus routes so once that piece has been established there's then um, a bunch of number crunching so there's a a fairly complex um, it's called the greener bus tool uh, spreadsheet which is packed full of algorithms that you drop all of your data into so what bus routes are you proposing to electrify What's the uh, kilometres that all of the buses run on those routes over the course of a year? Um, and then what's the capital that you will be putting into the pot um, to make sure that, um, that the business case is robust for the public sector? So that then is dependent upon the, the price of the bus and then the price of the infrastructure. So the infrastructure is the the big variable because the bus price is pretty much consistent unless you are looking at different battery sizes. Um, Obviously, you need a larger battery if you're running longer routes Um, or indeed if it's a single or a double decker. Obviously, there's a different price point there. But it's the infrastructure where there's a, a lot more variation. As I said before, um, a lot of that is to do with how robust the existing power network is. If the power network is less robust, then the cost of the power connection can be really quite substantial in the the many millions. So, yeah, so all of those numbers come together um, and all of them are crunched through the algorithms within the Greener Bus tool. And then at the end of that process, there's a score. And if that score is is the right number, then that is deemed to be beneficial to the public sector or to the the states, if you like, UK PLC, such that um, uh, DFT can can consider it to be beneficial and therefore should merit funding. So, it's quite a complex process. I'm very fortunate that I have a whole bunch of expert people around me. So, um, I've certainly never number crunched uh, bus data through the algorithms like these before but yeah so it, it really needs input from our local authority partners obviously from our operational teams um, from our networking colleagues um, in terms of the the route lengths and how we can optimize them for electrification um, also some input from our finance colleagues so it's, it's quite an involved process yeah but very fortunately, um, we did secure additional funding for Leicester and some of our other facilities. And uh, Leicester will be 100% EV um, later on this year, which is wonderful.
0: So it's clear that the process certainly involved a lot of hard work and dedication from the entire First Bus team, as well as other stakeholders. Um, so, yeah, no, it's great news that Leicester will hopefully be be becoming all electric soon
1: yeah what's really fantastic is it's not just leicester so um others of our depots will be 100 percent ev as well over the course of the next few months so um we yeah we will have uh four so uh, four of our depots
0: that's great yes. no that's really yeah. positive to see and hear yeah. I'm looking forward to all of those news coming through for us. Um, So on that note, with Leicester as well as the others becoming one of the UK's first electrified bus depots, how will First Bus ensure that these new electric vehicles are integrated into its fleet? And what measures will the company put in place to maintain and operate the buses effectively?
1: Okay, so there's a, it's, this is a big change programme, effectively, and it's probably the biggest change programme that the industry has experienced, In well, certainly in the working lives of those that are with us today. So um, we've invested enormously in, firstly, engagement and communications and a little bit of myth busting. Um, it's quite common, I would say, that when there is a major change within a business, potentially those who are going to experience the change push back and try to find the negative and become quite anxious and worried about what does it mean for my job? What does it mean for next year? What does it mean for all the skills I've accumulated? Am I going to be relevant? So we've done quite a lot of um, communications and engagement at a local level to make sure that any of those uncertainties or concerns are addressed. So a classic one being: if I'm an engineer and I know how to fix a diesel bus, can I? Am I relevant in a world of electric buses? Am I going to be able to reskill um, and and learn what what needs to to be done in a in a new context of, of EV? So. The answer is that, yes, all of those people are relevant. There's still lots of common skill set. There's very common ground, for example, on bodywork. There will always be a need for people to, to fix bodywork. Uh, EV buses have tyres that need fixing. So there are quite a few, and the same as, as, as a diesel bus but so there are quite a few very compatible um, o- overlap skills. And then, of course, there's the actual um, removal of the internal combustion engine, and the replacement with batteries. Um, That is very, very different. So that's really where all the training and um, learning needs to be. So we've got um, our bus manufacturer partners are working with us effectively to run training schools to make sure that all of our people are really, really comfortable with um, with all the, the new needs of those buses. We've obviously had electric buses, quite a lot of them in our fleet for about 18 months now. And um, generally, they need less fixing and poking and maintaining than ICE. There's not so many components that can go wrong or have faults. So um, so the, the the transformation has been pretty solid. So, So that's the engineering community. So we think they're all pretty excited. And certainly the, the um, people coming into the industry are very excited by the prospect of working on EVs, if perhaps they've not had too much experience of diesel before. Um, for drivers, it's a really similar experience. So there are a couple of minor adjustments to be mindful of in terms of how the buses move and how they brake. But that's a much a much easier transformational piece. Um, And it's as simple, really, as just allowing drivers enough time to familiarise themselves with the new vehicles in exactly the same way that you would with any other new vehicle. So you've then got the more fiddly bit, I would say, is scheduling. So where there is a bit of a delta between diesel and EV is on range. And this is often, um, you you may have heard the term range anxiety, Uh, It's common in cars as well, where people start to get a little bit twitchy if they're perhaps a bit further from home than they expected and they're going to need a charge. So where are they going to charge? Um, All of our routes have been mapped to align with an EV battery. So a diesel bus can run many hundreds of miles in one day, whereas an EV bus, if it only gets charged up overnight overnight, um, a regular-sized battery, it can run about 180 miles. If there are extenuating circumstances, for example, if it's really cold, the battery doesn't perform as well. So that range does become affected. So it's been really important for us to make sure that our schedulers and the network team um, can understand what EV limitations are and that we just uh, shuffle and adjust our routes accordingly. So that's, I'd say, the the one of the more fiddly bits where we've had to work quite hard to make sure that we are absolutely aware of of how we can flex to make sure that in the event of a very cold day, and, and for example, uh, the freezing weather we had over this winter, that we know what it means and we know when to pause a bus back at the depot and recharge it perhaps rather than send it out again. So obviously, all of the EVs have got very clever dashboards, and um, we know exactly what's going on in terms of how much battery life is left in there. So it's not it's not like the driver suddenly <laughs> breaks down on the middle of a freezing road somewhere. But, um, but yeah, I'd say that is the area where there's still a bit of work to do. And we're working very closely with our manufacturer partners to, to try and learn as fast as we can. But yeah, so I'd say those are the three biggies. Um, so, yeah, the engineering community, the drivers and the schedulers, everyone else, I think, is pretty excited by it. So, and it's, it's not necessarily going to be directly compromised or have too much change in their life.
0: Brilliant. Thank you for sharing those insights, Isabel. It's fascinating to, to see just the anxieties that surround this type of change, as well as how it impacts the different members of the first bus team. So, thank you for providing us with a deeper understanding into some of the challenges that the companies currently facing in this transition, as well as what you're doing to implement and how you're working with your team as well to transition to this change. It's um, evident that it, this is a complex process that requires a lot of careful planning and collaboration amongst various stakeholders, as you've mentioned. So as we come to the end of the podcast episode today, I'd like to shift our focus a bit more to the topic of the future by asking you about your thoughts on how you see the transportation industry evolving over the next decade, particularly in terms of sustainability and the adoption of EVs. If I start
1: with the sustainability angle within that question, I think it's pretty clear to all of us now there's there's such compelling evidence that we've just got to stop emitting carbon dioxide and others of the greenhouse gases that are contributing to climate change. None of us wants to be part of that and none of us wants to to see all of the devastating impacts that climate change can have whether it's within our own country or elsewhere. So I think becoming more sustainable is just a no-brainer. Now whether it is through electric vehicles um, zero emissions vehicles, or whether it is through hydrogen, I think there's still lots of um, lots of uncertainty there. I think both of those vehicle types um, will will be present, but at the moment, um, there's, hydrogen is, isn't quite as mature as the um, electric vehicle space. But I do think that we will see very little continued investment in diesel vehicles. I mean, there's been pretty clear mandates set by government. In terms and and international governments in terms of the expectations on diesel manufacture and sale, so I think the sustainability bit in terms of what is powering the vehicle, there's a there's a very clear pathway there. Um, I guess the interesting bit is more so about modal shift and whether we will also see in parallel um, a decrease in the number of cars on the road, which obviously as a as a bus services provider, we would very much like to to help make that the reality. Um, I think increasingly, we are seeing less of a desire to own a vehicle in the way that was very dominant over the last couple of decades. And younger people in particular are much happier to share. So certainly, as a, someone who lives in London, where always the infrastructure is absolutely amazing, I haven't owned a car for nearly 20 years now however I can rent a car by going on an app and walking two minutes from my home should I need a car to drive to Ikea or to the garden centre or to go see one of my friends who lives in a difficult location. So that type of um, having what you need for a short period of time rather than having a big expensive lump of metal set outside my house just um, depreciating and, and taking up my time in terms of um, admin, as I would call it, life admin. um, I think that model is increasingly available to people and increasingly appealing. So I guess that's what's interesting is if we could together, whether it's buses, whether it's trains, whether it's um, taxis, whether it's scooters, whatever it is that we're all trying to um, promote as a mode of transport that isn't the private car, um, I'd like to think that the the customer appetite is there now in a way that perhaps wasn't the case 10 years ago. So yes, yeah, so I, I think the industry could evolve quite substantively because of that potential for modal shift that is much more, like c- you can feel it might be there um, more so than in, than in previous uh, Previous times, I would say.
0: Yes, no, I completely agree, especially since the pandemic, there's been a lot more demand for shared mobility as well as actual travel options. So, no, I hope that this is a vision that we will see become a reality in the very near future. Yeah, it's just really encouraging to see that public transport providers like First Bus are at the forefront of this change. So as we continue to focus on the future, what technological advancements do you believe will have the greatest impact on society in the next 10 to 20 years? And how do you think they will shape the way that we live and work?
1: But for me, it's data and it's the customer interface with passenger transport. So it's accurate, real-time data versus an app telling you something that perhaps isn't It's a different version of the truth than what you're experiencing directly at the bus stop. Um, It's things like what I described in terms of going onto, you know, me being able to go onto an app and book a car that's parked a couple of hundred metres away for a couple of hours. It's having that sight of all the options, but across the UK rather than just limited to major urban centres in the way that it is at the moment. In most of these service provisions are limited to where there is a critical mass of people. I don't know that you can do that car rental model if you're in a, a village uh, some some way from an urban centre. So um, I think that is a big part of the solution is that with that data and the confidence that you can travel as you planned to rather than travel and be beholden to whether or not that data was correct and whether or not you then have to stand outside on a on a busy road or on a spooky train platform or whatever it is for a period of time before you actually make the journey as anticipated I do think that that is a big part of of what will enable change because with that data and that certainty more, and also with the data, you'll be able to see what all your choices are far more effectively than you can now. Um, I think that could be the real game changer piece. Now, of course, with that, we all have to be very mindful of the important minority of people who are not very comfortable with digital data sets. So increasingly, that, that is a smaller and smaller percentage of people, but they really matter. So whether it's because perhaps they're a little older and it's more difficult for them to adjust to digital platforms rather than a, a paper-based timetable, or perhaps it's you know someone who's, who's um, visually impaired, therefore um, we need to make sure that the digital data talks to them correctly in a way that they can use it. Um, perhaps they've got English as a second language, and so we need to make sure that all of our data sets talk to that community as well. Um, so there's still a lot of work to do and it, it can't only be a data fix, but I, but I do think that, um, that, that an, an effective system of data, <laughs> I am not a data person, clearly the language that I'm using here, but if that all integrates better as is forecast and as all of us are working together to make happen, then, um, then that should help with that modal shift and. Uh, and just, yeah, just improving improving uh, the streetscape. We don't want to see big, long traffic jams. We don't want to have all the emissions coming out the back of the cars. So, um, yeah, it could, could lead to a much happier future.
0: Amazing. Thank you. It's exciting to see that the potential that data has in changing and just enhancing the user experience. Finally, to wrap up our podcast episode today, are there any final notes that you'd like to share with our listeners about the work that First Bus is doing to achieve its climate action targets?
1: Um, So I guess the other other areas of work that I haven't talked about so much this morning are what we're doing on carbon emissions that are not attributed to our buses. So with our buses, we've got a very clear programme of work. And as I said, we'll, we'll be 100% zero emissions by 2035. We are uh, currently at just over 6%, but we've got a very, very busy year. And at the end of March next year, we've, we, um, we measure things on our financial years rather than calendar years. Um, we should be somewhere around 15% of our fleet will be zero emissions. So, that piece of work, or that program of work rather, is is in a is in a pretty robust place. Um, what's a bit more um, in development is how we're dealing with those residual emissions, and those are all coming from our depots. So, as I mentioned before, we've got all different shapes and sizes and age profiles. All of those spaces have very different energy profiles and we need to adopt very different solutions to try to improve the energy efficiency of those buildings so one of the things we've done recently that um we've we've now talked about externally is we have put solar panels on most of our roofs or at least all those roofs that can accommodate them so we've got 20 of our large depots now have very substantial solar um, solar PV, so that's photovoltaic panels on the roofs. So those generate power that the building then uses through the day. And that's feeding our engineering workshops and our office spaces, our welfare spaces, canteens, things like that. So that's been a really successful program of investment this last few months. Um, we've also put a lot more um, digital controls into some of our bigger spaces. So that means that, for example, if a roller door is up, And it's freezing cold outside, and therefore all of the heating from inside the workshop can be um, escaping. Um, There will be a sensor that will then turn off that heating to make sure that we don't continue to heat the outdoors. But these simple fixes are really helpful in terms of just making a much more comfortable space for all of our people, and then of course um, not spending money on something that didn't need to be spent. That means we can reinvest, i.e., giant energy bills, because um, our power and, and gas use is, is not as well controlled as it could be. So um, that's a couple of the programmes we've put in. And, uh, and yeah, and we're continuing to, to roll out a, a good amount of work in that space. And those sort of visual, small, local visual fixes are really motivating our people. It's They, they love that we've now got solar panels in our building and they know that the building is more efficient, it's more future-proofed, it's, um, yeah, it's more fit for purpose. So we've got, a, a yeah, a good few programmes of work in there. I'm very fortunate I've got a fantastic team around me that are, are able to, to make this stuff happen.
0: Well, that's really great to hear. Thank you for sharing all of those amazing projects from the sound of it. It's just nice to see that First Bus isn't just focusing on its vehicles and its bus fleet, but also just its workforce and everything behind the scenes. It's great to see in here. And... Um, Unfortunately, that concludes our episode for today. Isabel, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today and for sharing your valuable insights with our listeners. Your perspectives on sustainability within the transport industry and um, emerging technologies were truly thought-provoking, and I'm sure that our listeners have gained a lot of knowledge from this conversation. So thank you once again.
1: No worries. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Before we go, a quick note to our listeners. I hope that you all enjoyed today's episode. If you're keen to hear more about other key topics from within the transport industry, then please do make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss out on our future episodes, as we have plenty more exciting discussions in store for you. You can listen to every episode of our podcast, both past and future, on our website, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well as any other platform that you usually listen on. On behalf of myself and Isabel, thank you all for your time and for listening to us today. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.